Pod Doctors is brought to you by the Kindle book, Saving Limbs, Saving Lives, Advanced Treatments to Prevent Amputations in Diabetic Populations. This book by Dr. Damien Dauphiné discusses specific patient cases in diabetic limb preservation, which highlight the modern use of wound care technology that has exploded in the last 20 years. With only one advanced therapy available in 1999, there are now hundreds of options to help close chronic wounds in diabetic patients. Dr. Dauphiné distills these options down to show patients and physicians treating these patients how combinations of these products can be used to save limbs and save lives. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, board-certified foot and ankle surgeon, and my partner, Dr. Rafa Hussein, fellowship-trained podiatric surgeon, and we are The Pod Doctors. Each week, The Pod Doctors will be discussing aspects of podiatric medicine and surgery to educate our audience on common foot and ankle problems and the latest treatment options available. We hope to bring you interesting and informative shows each week discussing all the crazy ways that our wonderful foot can malfunction and cause us problems. So please find us on all the platforms where you find your typical podcasts, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and YouTube where you can view our videos. So please like and subscribe, and we will see you next time on The Pod Doctors. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damian Dauphiné, and I'm here with my partner, Dr. Rafi Hussein. And today we are going to delve into a mysterious problem that we see from time to time, restless leg syndrome. And uh, so, Dr. Uh, Hussein, what, what do we get? What is, what is restless leg syndrome? What do we know about this mysterious problem? So, restless leg syndrome, I almost like to compare to fibromyalgia. You know, it's one of those diagnoses of exclusion where we're trying to rule out other common problems for your restless leg syndrome, um, but we can't figure out exactly what it is. We can't put our finger on it. The symptoms, you know, the aching, the tingling, the sensation of bugs on the skin, that's called paresthesias, the tightening, the, uh, the squeezing sensation, they're very similar to a lot of problems and a lot of nerve problems that we're, we're seeing uh, in the lower extremities. Yeah, so interestingly, if you, if you lined these common symptoms up with the symptoms of a fibular nerve entrapment at the head of the fibula, so common fibular nerve entrapment or common perineal nerve entrapment, they would be identical. Yeah. You can see the exact same symptoms. So I think in patients who have unilateral or one-sided restless leg syndrome, you really need to get worked up for a nerve entrapment because there's a high, high likelihood that that's really what's going on. It's not some mysterious restless leg syndrome. Yeah. So quite often with restless leg syndrome, they'll have sleep disorders. They'll have insomnia, irritability, discomfort, sensitivity, all from their lower extremities, which are you know sensitive. They'll talk about wearing socks and shoes or certain type of, um, you know. Compression stockings. Yeah. Uh, anything that'll cause white noise or sensation to weed out whatever's causing the strange feeling. And it's not just the patient, but their partners. You had a, a patient recently. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. This poor me. guy. He hasn't slept through the night in eight years. And his wife was distraught. He was distraught. It was affecting his general medical health for sure because we years. all need sleep. And he, he needs had a terrible time sleeping he literally said he sleeps for 90 minutes to maybe two hours at a time and he so he's getting up four or five times a night um thankfully he's retired so it's not affecting his day job but 
Uh, it's really become a very serious medical condition for this gentleman. He found me through a, our colleague, Jim Anderson in Colorado, who wrote a paper about this, decompression, nerve decompression, surgical nerve decompression for this problem. And we worked him up. We found that he had all the symptoms. We operated on him. And I saw him the third post-op day after the surgery and his wife gave, gave me this huge hug and she's like, my God, this is so great. My husband's finally sleeping through the night. I'm finally sleeping through the night. And she was joking that she needed to make sure that he was still alive because <laughs> he, was, he was so soundly asleep that she wasn't sure he was still breathing. But yeah, I think it's gratifying when you can isolate that this is truly what's going on, that it's a nerve entrapment syndrome. And he had, he had only, he had unilateral symptoms. We operated on the left, his right. He may have had some very minor issues, but all of that went away when we got rid of the pain on the left. Yeah. So I think, yeah, this is definitely something that we can offer patients if we can establish that there's an entrapment syndrome going on and we'll go through how we do that. A lot of these uh, RLS uh, patients are also comorbid with like neurological disease, Parkinson's, uh, multiple sclerosis. A lot of uh, patients will get thrown the RLS diagnosis when they have these other problems and they'll be treated empirically with medications and other things. Well, they may also have a nerve entrapment yeah. or something similar going on. I think we see this with diabetic peripheral neuropathy Easy. as well yeah. because patients get labeled with that and the assumption is this is a stocking glove uh, peripheral neuropathy that has no treatment. And then no one goes a little further to establish that whether or not there is an entrapment syndrome on top of the metabolic problem. So I think thyroid patients too, we'll probably go into that too yeah. about thyroid patients. So primary and secondary RLS. Primary is more genetic based. Um, secondary is more comorbid based, you know, iron deficiencies, pregnancies, uh, liver problems, hypothyroidism, uh, B12 deficiency. People get tossed B12 you know, like it's a Tic Tacs because, uh, you know, you, you have a little bit of neuropathy or you have RLS and uh, your B12s are slightly on the low side or on, are easy thing to kind of uh, empirically treat with. But you got to dive in a little bit further sometimes. I, and a lot of these folks have multiple conditions going on at the yeah. same time. So you can have someone who's got Charcot-Marie Tooth or, or who is diagnosed with a a vitamin deficiency who also has diabetes. Yeah. I mean, very commonly. So you, the more, I think, checkboxes with these things, the higher the likelihood is they're going to have an entrapment syndrome on top of this. So, yeah, if we can work them up and, you know, hopefully keep them off these meds. But, yeah, I think gabapentin and Lyrica are two very commonly used drugs for neuropathic pain. Yeah. They can be somewhat helpful for patients with RLS, but they're not... They're not fixing anything. Um, if it's an entrapment syndrome, they're clearly not going to fix that. Uh, but they are stabilizers of the nerve. And so the, the idea is they are raising the threshold for the nerve to get irritable and cause the patient to have to move the foot or move the leg. Uh, gabapentin has to be dosed appropriately. Yeah. So does Lyrica. Do you feel like you have to taper them up? Yeah, you need to titrate them. And that means start a low dose, see how they respond to it, but then slowly ramp up that dose so that they're getting pain relief along with uh, they're able to tolerate the side effects. And so that's the whole idea of titration is to find that happy place. Yeah. And thankfully with gabapentin, there's a big broad spectrum of dosing schemes up to 3,600 milligrams a day. 
And most people aren't going to get good pain relief until they're on 1,800 milligrams a day. And this is information from the Stanford Pain Management Group. So this isn't me spouting off. This is There's some good research behind this and, and some very smart guys in pain management at Stanford would, would recommend the same scheme for, for treating people with gabapentin. And they also recommend that you don't start people off on Lyrica because Lyrica is a prodrug. It becomes gabapentin once it goes through your liver. Yeah, it's pretty gambling. Yeah. So once once you've maxed out on gabapentin and say they're on 3,000 milligrams a day, they're not getting pain relief and they're not suffering from all the horrible side effects, which would be fogginess, loopiness, waking up hungover. That's a patient that's not absorbing the drug, most likely. Yeah. So then that would be a good reason to move them to Lyrica, which is absorbed differently. It's absorbed in the duodenum. Uh, so you're going to get the benefit of the absorption, actually the drug getting into the system then. And then you can adjust their dose. Uh, but I have patients that take up to 450 milligrams of Lyrica a day and yeah. do do well. But but those are patients who we, we've already failed gabapentin for whatever reason, most likely, again, an absorption problem. Now, with gabapentin and Lyrica... I have patients that are have been described it, and they're told to take it as needed. Is is that a good way of taking these medications? I don't think so. I, I really think, much like NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories for musculoskeletal pain, the idea is to get a blood level going and kind of keep it there. Yeah. So I think taking it sporadically, you're going to get poor results from that, most likely. Uh, you might benefit from an 800 milligram ibuprofen for a headache, yeah. But if you don't, if you've got chronic osteoarthritis, you really want a steady state going, you know, every day. Yeah. So I think dosing schemes are important. I think um, sticking with the drug. Uh, and I, the biggest problem with it, I think, is people get started on doses that are too high, and, and then they get the, the side effects, and yeah. it burns the drug for them. They don't want to use it anymore. And that's unfortunate. So I think going slow, we usually do the 100 milligram capsule at bedtime for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And, and I explain to the patient, I'm like, hey, look, this isn't going to help your pain. My goal for these first 10 to 14 days is to see how you respond to the drug. If you respond to the drug reasonably well, you're not getting pain relief, but it's not making you miserable, like hungover every day. And you can still do your work. Then we can slowly ramp up the dose to reach pain relief for you and, and do that in a way that won't cause this overarching, you know, problem with the, the potential side effects. Yeah. I think that it, the drug is safe, gabapentin. It's you're not going to overdose on it. You're just going to no. poop it out. It's non-addictive. It's it's not a narcotic. Yeah. It can be misused, and there are some interesting ways that people were misusing it for a while. But um, I think that's pretty rare. Um, it's not a narcotic. It's not going to cause addiction necessarily. So. Yeah. So there's also supplements that you know we like to put them on: iron, B12, alpha-lipoic acid, yeah. uh, magnesium. There's a couple of medications or supplement companies that put them all together as one. We like to use them. It's yep. kind of a easy way to you know get I, them all in I, your system. I think it's a no-brainer. Uh, very few patients have not tolerated it. There's an expense to it, of course, because it's not covered by insurance. But but we've found reasonably good results in starting off with something like that as an adjunct. Yeah. But then also understanding that if you're going to operate on the patient, we we really want them on these to help provide the building blocks for good nerve healing as well. And so I think that's really important too. Yeah, it's the same logic if I do any type of osteotomy. I'm like, look, make sure you're going to have calcium and vitamin D. Mm -hmm. Same thing with nerves. We want the building blocks there so you heal up after everything that's been going on with your nerves. And, and part of the workup 
could be, you know, we don't do this on every single patient, but we do, we can run B6 and B12 levels on people and determine if their vitamin D levels are low. I mean, vitamin D is part of that supplement pack that we recommend because D is a hormone and it has an impact on nerve health. If you, you are vitamin D deficient, you're kind of setting yourself up for a peripheral nerve problem. So I think we need to look at a, you know, a real global picture here. Don't lose the forest for the trees, but yeah. So as your RLS advances, your doc may put you on more advanced medications like Mirapex or Neuropro. Um, these are serotonin, um, agonist serotonin reuptake inhibitors. They increase the serotonin in your body, pretty much you know, treating you on the inside. But if we have something physically you know, going on, we definitely want to address that. So common surgeries. Now, this was tough. So yeah, there's RLS, not a lot out there on this. Yeah. yeah, RLS has classically been treated, you know, with medications, you know, just tolerate the pain, you know, and then when it gets really bad, the, the go-to surgical treatment has been spinal cord stimulators. They're white noise machines to, to help, you know, filter out the sharp tinglings and burnings and, and whatever you get from RLS, but they don't actually fix much. They don't, they don't actually fix anything, but they do fix the symptoms, if that counts. It, they can. Can yeah, and and it's an expensive option. I mean, the spinal cord stimulators are about fifty grand a pop, and um, you know it's an invasive procedure, obviously. So I think for the patients who failed everything else, that that may be an option. Yeah, but if if nobody's looked at whether or not there is the potential for a nerve entrapment, the the neurolysis procedure or the nerve decompression procedure is far less. I, I, I think there are far fewer. Complication, potential complications from that than having wires, you know, inserted into your spinal column. Yeah. So I think that we definitely don't want to miss that step. I think skipping over the workup for a nerve entrapment and going straight to spinal cord simulator is, I think, a huge mistake. I don't think that's beneficial to anybody. Now, there's also talks about venous ablations or, uh, I, I, you know, I could see people with chronic leg edema who have heavy chronic kind of gnawing pain yeah i mean i think you got to work up venous and you got to work up arterial uh insufficiency as as a problem but you know i don't i don't know that vein ablation is there's there's probably an indirect way that it would help with edema and stuff yeah pressure yeah i mean some of these folks get lipodermatosclerosis from chronic swelling and so the tissues under the skin are getting fibrous and scarred You can when you cut them in surgery, it sounds like you're cutting celery. Yeah, celery stock. So that if that's happening in the fat layers around the knee, you could see how that's compressing the common fibular nerve as it wraps around the fibular neck there. So it's it's not impossible that these things could address the long-term repercussions on the nerve, but I think you know there, there's it's an indirect correction. It's not the direct that's not the direct source of why people get RLS. So another treatment, last option is like you know pain injections. They can do little steroid mm-hmm. shots in and around the nerves if they can find a branch or a herniated disc or something. But that obviously is more based on a nerve impingement in the back rather than RLS. But you know throw that in there. So this is um, one of your your colleagues, right, Doctor D? Yeah, this is Jim Anderson. He is a podiatric foot and ankle surgeon specializing in peripheral nerve problems up in Fort Collins, Colorado. He wrote this paper with the Neuromuscular Function Lab uh, in the Department of Health and Exercise Science at Colorado State University. And they did all the stats for him. And it's a really nice cohort. 
looking at visual analog scale pain scales in patients with restless leg syndrome who had been worked up for the potential for nerve entrapment. And in those patients that they believe truly had a nerve entrapment problem, they operated on those folks. They looked at their before and after VAS scores and they found that patients did quite well. So I think if you are looking at patients who are suffering from unilateral or one-sided restless leg syndrome specifically, that's, I think, a huge population that needs to be looked at more closely for for nerve entrapment. And then those who had bilateral symptoms or both sides, if they still had signs and symptoms of an entrapment syndrome where they had tenderness with palpation around the nerve at the fibular neck, which would be called the positive provocative sign, if you could tap over that nerve or the superficial branch and have tingling down into the foot, that's a positive tenel. Uh, Tenel sign, and and that's another indication that maybe there's an entrapment at that site. So, I think this paper really highlights the fact that surgical nerve decompression for this problem could be extremely helpful, and you don't want to skip over that or ignore it for sure. Yeah. It's not to say that all RLS is nerve uh, entrapment, but there is a good portion of it that is. Yeah, I, I really think it's missed. It's misdiagnosed in a lot of cases, and so we need to keep in mind that that's a possibility. So this is a great little series of surgical diagrams here showing the anatomy that we encounter when we we do these. So this is your common peroneal nerve that comes around your fibula on the side of your knee, the outside of your knee. It comes directly over the fibula and under the muscles and fascias over that area. And those fascial bands can literally put pressure along that Mm -hmm. nerve and pinch it off. It's just like carpal tunnel syndrome or ulnar nerve entrapment. You can literally see the indentation in the nerve often. And when you release that tissue, like in the picture you just highlighted there, you can sometimes see blood vessels open up in the nerve right away. And, you know, we're using the nerve integrity monitor uh, while we're doing this. So we're measuring intraoperative electromyograms. Yeah. So a lot of these patients have had nerve conduction study EMG done before. Sometimes it's going to find conductive problems or fibrillation in muscles fed by this nerve, because this is both the sensory and a motor nerve. So we were talking about this before. EMGs can sometimes give you positive or false negatives uh, when you get them tested. So patients will go go get their EMG, and sometimes we'll see them come back negative. We're talking about this, how sometimes we'll have patients have, this is what I tell to patients, I want you to have the most busiest morning ever, And then I want in the afternoon you to go get your EMG testing if you can schedule it that way. Because sometimes it's more of a functional nerve entrapment. Those muscle bellies can come and press along those nerves or the fascia can tighten up when those muscle bellies are hypertrophied and it can press on those nerves. And I've been getting more uh, successful positive results, more accurate positive results. I don't disagree with that. I think that's that's a really important thing to consider. Um, You're going to get some engorgement of those muscles just from the work they do during the day when you're walking. Uh, The other thing I think to remember is a lot of these folks are going to have weakness of the extensor hallucis longus. Your big toe. Yep. So you get in there and you measure both sides and compare the two on the, on the side where they're having most of their symptoms, you're going to find weakness in their ability to extend against your, your pressure. And 
I think that's helpful. And the other, if they had tarsal tunnel syndrome or tibial nerve entrapment, it would be it'd be flexion weakness. Yeah. So I think if you just do that simple test, you can you can map out their their nerve distribution with a Wartenberg wheel or any sort of pinwheel. Yeah. And you can see if it's demonstrably different on one side versus the other, and then. Obviously, palpation around the, the nerve and doing your tunnel sign where you're tapping over those branches. Yeah, a lot of patients don't realize that the common pronoun nerve, its function it, most, most muscularly is to bring your foot up and down, up mm-hmm. most prominently. If that nerve is significantly injured, it'll get drop foot. Right. So uh, we try to explain that to patients and while we're doing these exams and stuff, and I think it kind of you know, sets off a little light bulb. So I think, yeah, I think studying both the sensory and the motor aspects of the common fibular nerve is important. So yeah, there's a good this picture. This is one of yours, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a fully decompressed common fibular nerve. So the vessel loop is that red rubber band that we have around the nerve. It allows us to manipulate the nerve safely and gently. The red tissue obviously is muscle. The white tissue at the top is fascia that we've released. Yeah, so that's the silver skin that we're releasing. So there's really nothing now compressing that nerve. Uh, and now we can either wrap it or cover it with cryopreserved umbilical cord. And that's what that tissue is is right there. The advantage of that tissue, in my mind, is chock full of neurotrophic factors. So it's got growth factors for nerve healing. It's also got heavy chain hyaluronic acid molecules, which are believed to be responsible for fetal tissue healing, scarless healing. And I think you combine that with what it can accomplish for the nerve and for the overlying scar, we're seeing better scars. We're seeing, you know, really tremendous uh, drops in the visual analog scale in patients where they may have come in with pain eight out of 10, and now it's down to a one or a two. So the, I think the addition of the cryopreserved umbilical cord to protect the nerve It'll stick around for about four months, then your body's going to replace it. But it's providing cushioning, it's providing growth factors, it's providing this heavy chain hyaluronic acid molecule for tremendous wound healing. Yeah, and on top of that, it's preventing our surgical site from scarring down against right. that nerve. And it's it's easy to, to suture. We're using nino nylon to suture it yeah. in place in that. Uh, so we'll tag it in the corners yeah. and. It's 10 times thicker than the stuff we were using, which was the dehydrated the dehydrated version. Yeah. So I really like this stuff. Um, I think we're, we've converted to it in every case that we possibly can. So I think it's a big added benefit. And you can see the, the NIM unit, yeah, the electrode. So that's, a, that's an electrode in the perineus longus muscle. And then the one under my hand that you can barely see there, the red one. That's in tibialis anterior. So that's the front of the knee on the top of the picture, and this is the back of the Bel- knee. Yeah, below the tibial tuberosity there, about a hand's breadth below the tibial tuberosity is where you want to put that. And so yeah. we're able to see a graph. We're stimulating the nerve directly with a, a special probe that's designed for that, putting 5 to 10 milliamps of electricity into the nerve and then measuring what the muscle's doing on the other end of that that circuit. Yeah. And we'll do it before and after the release. Yeah. So we're seeing before and after picture. And we've seen, you know, you and I have been in doing cases together where we've seen it, it go up 10 times. Yeah. It's and amazing. That, that's you know, to go from 3,000 microvolts up to 30,000 microvolts. That almost always correlates with pain relief for these folks. Yeah. I've almost never seen a, you know, a two or three fold difference in the before and after picture, not 
correlate with pain relief. So it's yeah. it's a great thing to be able to show the patient or their family in recovery and say, hey, look, we were able to increase the conductivity of the nerve, you know, threefold, fivefold, tenfold, whatever it might be, and show them the visual of the graph. I think it's really cool. It's like putting your foot on a hose, you know, you're before you're measuring how fast that water's coming out with your foot on the hose, you take that pressure off, you release that pressure, bam, that hose is spraying like crazy. Yeah, the, the, the nerve needs to be able to transmit nutrients up and down the nerve column to be able to heal itself from just minor trauma of everyday life. And it can't do that well when it's compressed. And so you see this compounding of, of these problems. So that was kind of our, our quick overview on restless leg syndrome. The causes, there could be many, it could be difficult to diagnose, but like we said, a common oversight is peripheral nerve entrapment. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, you have, keep you that want, in mind. Yeah, if you have someone or if you have nerve entrapment, have them get checked out. The AENS.US website. You know, yeah, Association of Extremity Nerve Surgeons. So AENS.US is a great place to go and get more information about peripheral nerve problems. You can also find a physician finder where both MD, DO, and DPM, plastic surgeons, podiatric surgeons like Dr. Hussein and I, who have an interest in peripheral nerve and have additional training in peripheral nerve, are listed there across the country, uh, even across the world. Yeah. And it's a great place to go. They're constantly uploading new information onto that website, but it, uh, it's a nice place to go if you're trying to find somebody who has interest in this and, and get a second opinion, uh, maybe before you get a spinal cord stimulator for this, for sure, because um, yeah. it may be unnecessary. Well, fantastic. That was a great overview of restless leg syndrome and the mystery that it, uh, it presents to us at, at times. So definitely think of Nerve entrapment as a possibility, especially in those one-legged versions, for sure, if it's on one side. Well, thanks, Dr. Hussein. I think that was terrific. I hope that everybody uh, likes and subscribes and, you know, send us any new information you want to learn more about, for sure. But if this spurs on other questions, uh, just shoot us some questions in the links and we'll, we'll get back to you. And that is it for restless leg syndrome for today. So we will see you next time on The Pod Doctors. Thank you for listening to The Pod Doctors. We appreciate all of our listeners and subscribers. If you'd like to hear more, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and watch our videos on YouTube. Like, thumbs up, subscribe, be safe. See you all next time. Bye-bye.